We pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. You who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In 2014, a Bible critic named Bart Ehrman wrote a book. And his book was called How Jesus Became God. So the general concept of the book was this. Not only was Jesus not actually God, but he never even claimed to be God. Jesus was just a really good religious teacher. And then after he died his disciples came up with this idea that he's God and they started to sort of spread it around. How Jesus became God. So Bart Ehrman wrote his book in 2014, but this is not a new concept. It's been around for a long time. If you're a a fan of very early church history, you know, some of the earliest heresies within the Christian church involved problems with this topic, with the divinity of Christ. Jesus says he's God and man, but it's the God part that was the challenge. And that makes sense, right? Like, it's not surprising. I don't think anybody would have trouble understanding that this very normal-looking guy from Nazareth was a real man. Of course, he's a human being. But the fact or the claim that he's God, God from all eternity, that's the surprising part. That's maybe the almost unbelievable part. So some people have asked, well, does it really matter? if Jesus is God or not? (laughs) Of course it matters. It matters a ton. Like, if Jesus wasn't God, how could he save us? How could he live a perfect enough life to qualify us for heaven? How could he put our sin on his shoulders and pay for it all? How could he rise from the dead? How could he raise us from the dead someday? I mean, if our whole salvation is going to work, it is absolutely essential that Jesus really is true God. So, was he or wasn't he? Well, since it's such an important topic, why don't we take a few moments this morning to hear it from the man himself. Um, Our sermon text comes from John chapter 10, 22 through 33. We begin, Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, And Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, and the Greek word is a little bit more like they aggressively surrounded him, and said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us, plainly. Pretty straightforward question. And Jesus answered, Well, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe, because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So is that a clear enough answer for us? Is Jesus 100%, without a doubt, claiming to be God? I mean, it sure seems like it, but the conversation's not over. We go on. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. 
And Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? It's in all yellow because it's important. We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped from their grasp. So is that clear enough for us? I think that's got to be clear enough for anybody. Not only did Jesus' disciples claim he was God, not only did Jesus himself claim that he was God, but even Jesus' enemies recognized his claim to be God. In fact, they tried to kill him for blasphemy, the crime of a man claiming to be God. And while they didn't succeed in stoning him at this time, they did succeed in getting him crucified later. So, our friend, or not, the Bible critic Bart Ehrman is wrong. Um, There's no question about who Jesus claimed to be. He claimed to be God. The real question is, can it really be true? Right? Can this totally normal-looking guy from Nazareth really be the almighty, all-powerful God who existed before the world existed and who's going to continue to exist long after it is gone? Could it really be true that Jesus actually is the eternal God? Well, Jesus knows this is a big claim, and so he offers up some pretty compelling evidence. Here's what he says, The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. And when he says his works, he's talking about his miracles. Jesus' miracles were very well established, even among his enemies. And I don't know if people really realize this today. I think today a lot of people are underwhelmed by Jesus' miracles or were not super impressed by Jesus' miracles simply because we weren't there to see them. And so people will just kind of assume, you know, Jesus did a lot of these miracles, but there's probably a scientific explanation for most of it. And you'll hear people saying things like this. For that miraculous catch of fish. I mean, realistically, right? Jesus probably knew the lunar patterns and he probably knew the migration patterns of the fish more than these simple, uneducated fishermen. And and maybe there was a day when there was this big swarm of fish and, and Jesus kind of got lucky and no one else noticed the fish and so he told them to put the nets down and that's how you'd explain this miraculous catch. Or people will say things like this. For Jesus' first miracle, the changing of water into wine. I mean, what he could have done is when he went out of the room to those jars of water, he could have taken a little jar of hard alcohol and poured it in there. And then he could have mixed in some spices to make it taste kind of like wine. And let's be honest, it was the end of the wedding banquet by this point. People were probably a little bit intoxicated. Even the master of the banquet says something about this. So they probably didn't really notice the difference. Or for the walking on the water. Right, Jesus probably knew where a hidden sandbar was, and so he used that to trick his disciples, and they were simple fishermen. They didn't really know what was going on. Or for the healing of the paralyzed man, and we know how this is done, like Jesus probably had a plant in the audience. Right? So there's got to be a scientific explanation for all of this. People say today. But is that remotely possible with Jesus' miracles? Absolutely not. And here's why. First, there is a limit to how many tricks one person can play before everybody starts getting suspicious of them. I mean, Jesus' first miracle, is it technically possible that at the wedding at Cana, Jesus had a flask of Everclear in the one sleeve and then he had like some wine-flavored Kool-Aid packets in the other one and he did his quick thing and he fooled everyone? Maybe, okay? 
But the Gospels record for us 37 major big public miracles, and then they refer to hundreds and hundreds of others. How many tricks can one person have up their sleeve? Secondly, how foolish do we think that people are? Just because these people lived 2,000 years ago doesn't mean that they were just totally brainless and gullible and they'd believe whatever you told them as though there was no lying and tricking and fraud in the ancient world. People were just as skeptical about claims back then as they are now. But then finally, maybe the biggest point is simply this. A lot of Jesus' miracles were way too amazing to fake. In public, he went to a guy who had been paralyzed his whole life, and everybody knew this guy because they had lived with him in the village his whole life, and Jesus told him to stand up, and he instantly stood up, and he started jumping and walking around. In public, Jesus took one kid's lunchbox with a couple of tiny loaves of bread and fish, and he kept handing out, kept handing out until 5,000 people were filled and there were 12 baskets full of leftovers and everybody saw him do it. In public, on three separate occasions, Jesus spoke to a dead body and the person stood up and came back to life. Like, in Jesus' time, there was no debate whether or not his miracles were real. There's no possible way that these were faked. The only argument his opponents had was an argument about the source of the power. And so they would say things like, by the prince of demons, this man is driving out demons. But whether it came from God or demons, there was 100% agreement Jesus had supernatural power. And all of that was before he rose from the dead. So... Jesus is making a very strong point, a very good point, when he says, the works that I do in my Father's name testify about me, that I'm really God. And yet, his opponents still picked up stones to stone me, to stone Jesus. And he says, why are you stoning me? What, what good thing have I done that you're going to execute me? They said, we're not executing you for a good thing, we're executing you for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, are claiming to be God. So, there's no doubt about Jesus' claim, there's no doubt about the evidence, and in fact, we might ask, if Jesus' divine power was really so clear and obvious that even his opponents are acknowledging it, why in the world did they not believe in him? But Jesus has the answer to that, too. He said, you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. And how sad it is to hear Jesus saying that to the leaders of his own Jewish people, that they are not his sheep. They are not listening. They are rejecting his claim to be God, even against all the evidence that he's showing. They might be rejecting his claim, but at least they're acknowledging it. They might be rejecting Jesus, but at least they're judging him on the basis of his actual words, even if their judgment is wrong. Can we say the same thing today? I'm not so sure that we always can. So last week we led off this series and we talked about how sometimes it's much easier to speak for Jesus and to put him into our own agenda than it is to listen to Jesus and conform our life around his agenda. 
We talked about how it's easy to subscribe to Jesus as a general concept without actually subscribing to some of the tough, challenging things he has to say. So what is the result of this kind of modern-day approach to Jesus where we like him to a degree? Well, the result is that instead of being totally fired up for Jesus like his disciples or totally turned off to Jesus like his enemies, we end up sort of like lukewarm. So we come to church, but only when we feel like it. And we quote the Bible, but only the parts that we like. And we're proud of our faith, and we'll talk about our faith when we're surrounded by other Christians. We're kind of ashamed of our faith, and we wouldn't admit to our faith if we're surrounded by people who believe differently. We're happy to be Christians, as long as it's easy. We get uncomfortable being Christians as soon as it looks like it's going to cost us something. What this reminds me of, I'm not sure if we realize how illogical this is, but what this reminds me of is a quote from C.S. Lewis. And here's what he says. Christianity, if true, is of infinite importance. If it's false, it's of no importance. But the only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. Is that not just completely true? Like, if Jesus is really the Son of God, and God became a person, and came into our world and lived for us, and died, was executed for us, and then rose from the dead, so when we die someday, we're going to be with God forever in heaven, that is the greatest thing that has ever happened in the history of our world by far. If Jesus isn't the Son of God, then our whole Christian faith is really a waste of time. But there's no middle ground where Jesus is only sort of God and the words he speaks are only sort of true. There's no lukewarm middle option. And yet, if a person were to look at our lives from the outside, I wonder if they would notice that that non-existent middle ground is actually where we spend a great deal of our time. Why is this? Well, we know why this is. It's because we have a divided heart. We have a divided heart. So on the one hand, we have something that the Bible calls our old self. Another word for it is the sinful nature. We have this part of us, even as Christians, that is stubborn and selfish and skeptical just to the very end. Our old self does not want to be one of Jesus' sheep. It does not want to listen to him. It does not want to follow him. It does not want a savior. But on the other hand, as Christians, by God's grace, we have something else inside of us. And that something else is what the Bible calls the new self, the new heart of faith in Jesus. Our new self is happy to listen to Jesus' voice. I mean, that's why your new self led you to church this morning. Our new self is excited, deep down, to let Jesus call the shots in our life. Our new self clings to our good shepherd. He knows us, we follow him, and the result is we will never perish. Jesus says you will never perish. No one will snatch you out of his or the Father's hand. So what does this look like when you put it all together? Well, it kind of looks like this illustration of the wandering kid who's kind of all over the place and the dad, or in our case, Jesus, is guiding him and never lets go. 
So despite our wavering, lukewarm faith, where we really don't hold on to Jesus as tightly as we should a lot of the time, Jesus holds on to us. And he will not let go. He promises he will not let go until we're safe with him in heaven. And, you know, one of the most awesome, lovable things about Jesus is that he's not just focused on heaven. Jesus is deeply and intimately involved in our life right here on earth. And as such, Jesus isn't going to just leave us in this illogical, lukewarm place where we do believe he's the Son of God, but we just only kind of, sort of, let it affect our life. So Jesus holds on tightly to our hand, and he leads us with his word. And he leads us with his sacraments. And he builds us up to walk with him all the way through this life. And sure enough, maybe you recognize this from your experience as I recognize it from mine. The more we listen to Jesus, the more the truth of who he is starts to sink into every part of our day-to-day life. It matters for everything. Think about it. No worry or anxiety can truly control us When God himself has promised, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Think about it. No health diagnosis, no cancer diagnosis, whatever it might be, for us or for a loved one, nothing is able to truly terrify us when we know that God himself has gone through death and has come out victorious on the other side. Think about it. No day of our life can really be boring and pointless. When we're spending that day surrounded by eternal souls who may be completely unaware of the amazing fact that God himself came into our world and died on the cross for our sins, and yes, for their sins too. The truth of who Jesus is matters for everything. And that's why we do what we're doing. That's why we come here to church. That's why we sit at Jesus' feet and we listen to his words and our hearts are filled with hope and with joy. Amen. And now the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus, your Savior. Amen.